Welcome to another episode of Jackman Radio. Uh, we're very excited tonight to be doing a live stream. It's great to be back. And uh, we are joined tonight by um, an independent geopolitical and 9-11 researcher, Mr. Adam Fitzgerald. Adam, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing very great. Thank you, Mike and Eric, for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I know we've been we've been trying to make this happen for a couple months now, so I'm glad to uh, to be able to put it together. And uh, before we went live, uh, I asked you if you were um, just a little background, you know, on your on your story and kind of where you're coming from. Um, I know you're from New York and you mentioned you actually were living in New York City when 9-11 happened. Yeah, so I was living in a, a Ridgewood, Queens at the time, small little area in Queens. Um on September 11, 2001, I was actually at work and um, I went home and um, it was very early in the morning and I was told from a neighbor of mine um, that a plane had hit the World Trade Center and immediately thought in my mind it was an accident. Um, it, it wasn't uh, at, at the time. Now, in, I have to be a little bit more clear in New York. If you're not from New York, we have apartment buildings where you can reach the roof and there's all different types. You have a four-story, a three-story, a five-story. So it's all different types of building. And in Brooklyn, New York, and Queens, we have a, a, a clear view of lower Manhattan, mid-Manhattan. So when we went to the roof, uh, we had thousands of other people on their roofs at this time. And we saw the enormity of the magnitude, which was the smoke. Um, not so much the hole, because at that point, in that vantage point, we couldn't see the east side of the World Trade Center. We just saw the smoke from it. And it was enormous. Um, at that time, the second uh, plane had impacted the South Tower. And we saw the fireball and the smoke go up. And that's when, you know, everyone started putting two or two together. And we had neighbors from the second or first floor uh, automatically, uh, almost on in unison, saying that uh, there's something more going on here. It's almost like they are, you know, doing it on purpose. And um, I, I felt that that was the majority of the country at that time. I mean, one is an accident, two is a trend. Um, and we didn't know anything about, you know, radical fundamentals. What do we know? The last time we knew anything about that was 1993. But uh, we're, and I was very ignorant about the world. I didn't care about geopolitics or anything like that. I was um, very, I think it was 27 at that time. Um, and just, you know, really didn't know anything about it. And uh, when it happened and when we invaded Afghanistan, Iraq, I mean, the majority of the country was just like, you know, we'll attack anybody. We need revenge. You know, we need to get back. And we just listened to what the media told us. And again, like I said, you know, I was very ignorant about how really the world worked. Um, you know, I was a Yankee fan for 30 years. I played college ball. And um, yeah, so I, I was just, you know, programmed into the world. Wasn't until I'd say when I moved to Vegas in 2000, uh, late 2002, early 2003, and then right around 2006. Um, this is after my studies into theology and monotheism, and I was very interested in that. But um, I made a mistake because I, when I started studying monotheism, I was an atheist, but I became an antitheist. And um, wasn't until one day I was in a viral room, and I think this is important to say because it changed my my mental state. Uh, I was an atheist, but he was very literate in the Bible. And um, I was very rude. And uh, he said, you know, you got, you're a problem. You're not doing this as a service. I really respected this guy. And for him to say that, it really took, a, 
I really just like I had to look in the mirror and say, "What? Wow! What did I? What am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong?" So I got off the internet for, for months and months, and um, I was a big fan of Christopher Hitchens, and I still am in a way. But now I see the error of his ways regarding geopolitics, especially because he became a neocon, something that he never was before. And Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett stuff. And I said, oh, my goodness. I said, I was, look, I became a fanatic. And I saw myself as an anti-theist. And, yeah, I'm an atheist still. But I, I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, I, I, I went, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? So months and months, uh, close to about eight to ten months, I evaluated my life and said I became uh, too programmed in human properties, human constructs. Uh, politics, religion, the schisms of the world, sexism. And I said, I have to step away from that. And I never wanted to make that mistake again, where if I ever looked at a human event in history where I was persuaded or biased on one side or the other, I really wanted to, to view the world in a gray area, not a black and white area. And so 2006, you know, after, right after... Um, I said, you know, what did I, what did I know about 9-11 really? You know, it's something I just started thinking about one day. And I was very much interested in psychology. It's my, my major in college. And um, everybody on the internet, when I first got my laptop in 2006, first forum I ran into was the James Randi Education Foundation, JREF forum. And um, they were talking about the physics, about how the buildings fell. And I said, oh, man, I'm terrible at physics and not very good at math. And when I look at these uh, people like Stephen Jones or Tony Zambotti um, and David Chandler, I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> these guys, are they're geniuses. Uh, I, I don't know anything about that. And nobody was talking about who these people were. I really want to. I was very interested in that. I wanted to know why they did this. You know, who are these people that we were told? who hijacked these planes, what their motivations were. And I'm a huge uh, reader of La Cosa Nostra and true crime. And that comes from my psychology background. And I wanted to know the psychology of these people. And so I started um, looking into the details of who, what, when, where, and why. And um, hardly anyone in 2006 was talking about this of any real uh, authority. But the very first people I ran into on the Internet uh, were, I can remember, Justin Raimondo, the late Justin Raimondo of Antiwar.com, and a young man by the name of Ryan Dawson. And um, they started talking about the Israeli apparatus, and I was like, Israel? How are they involved? And they were talking about the moving companies involved with the urban moving systems, and we could talk about that further in a little bit. And I said, I never heard about this. You know, are these conspiracies? Who are these guys? You know, I didn't know anything about them. And I started delving a little bit into that. And I said, wow, they were involved. And I can't dismiss this. I said, why were they involved? And so that brought me to foreign policy, something I had not imagined I was going to study. And so I said, all right, I have to look at this without any bias or preconceived notions whatsoever. I have to really look at this and study this. And so that led me to the intelligence apparatus that led me to us foreign policy with Israel, with Saudi Arabia. And it just, it was a branch out effect. And I took it to the extremes and something, you know, I'm not smarter than anybody. I know I'm not an expert, What I have is time. And I have a lot more time than most, most people have families and, you know, 
uh, I have a job where I, I was afforded me. I could read a lot. And so I, I really went overboard with a lot of books. And I studied a lot of these properties, more than the average person. And so that led me to 2015, 12 years later, almost 10 years later. And I still wasn't on the internet. I didn't produce a video or, um, a, you know, anything written work or anything like that. And I, I said to myself, you know, I have self-conscious issues where I said, oh, I'm not going to do well. I'm not, I don't sound uh, legitimate. I sound too New Yorkish and no one's going to take me serious. One day my niece came over and she saw me. She knows, she knows what I'm doing. She, I think she was, uh, I want to say she was 14 at the time. And she goes, well, what are you going to do with all this? And kids say the damnedest things, you know. And I said to myself, I had no answer. I said, what am I doing with all this? You know, it took me 10 years to realize that what am I studying this for if I'm not going to share what I know or what I've learned? And so she set me on the path that I was going to write my first article. And I did my first interview with Chuck Ocelli of the Ocelli Show. And I was nervous. And that was a two-hour interview. And that was in 2017, I believe. And I and on the floor, and I never told anybody this. I don't think I told Reed this. Maybe I did, but I'll tell you. Um, I had like 10 pieces of paper on the floor, on the desk. And, you know, I was so nervous. and I, I didn't want to mess it up. And at one point, I just pushed everything to the side. I said, this ain't working. You know, I'm just looking on the floor, looking like this, like an idiot. And, and it came to me naturally. And I was so nervous that I, I want to ruin it. But I didn't have the security and the self-confidence to think, hey, yeah, you can talk about this to an extent. And so I, it went well. But I, you could tell in the audio that I was speaking a mile a minute. And I even apologized when we were at a break. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, if I'm going speaking too fast, he said, no, don't worry about it. You're doing fine. And now I do videos and now I do written work and now I do uploading of documents of files on my WordPress. And, um, you know, now I, you know, do interviews and, you know, thank you for having me on and rambling at the, to this point. <laughs> hey, you know, absolutely, Adam. I think it's great to have a background and uh, I'm always interested and curious to hear about our guests. And um, it sounds like your journey was very similar to ours uh, with respect to, oh religion in a lot of ways. Um, you know, back certainly high school and college, I, I was I was like an angry atheist, you know, I thought I knew what the answers were with respect to that. And anybody else who, you know, had the religion was uh, foolish or, and for me, it was really a response growing up in a small town, um, you know, where religion was really beat down everybody's throat and in your face all the time. And you really couldn't say anything, you know, to counter it. Um, but I, I, and I liked Hitchens too, you know, I, I idolized Hitchens in college. Um, I love seeing him, uh, take down Jerry Falwell. And, you know, the mm -hmm. first time, the first time I really saw Hitchens was I think 2007 when he appeared on Hanley and Combs, like a day after Falwell died. And he was just like unrelenting, calling him a huckster oh. and a, you know, he, he was a charlatan. He was a religious businessman. He, he, he preached superstition about people's lives, which he knew nothing about. And the truth is I'm, I'm not sad that he's dead. So I saw Hitchens do that, and I was like, oh, I like, I love this guy. Yeah. But um, but I, I, but then I found out what his take was on the war in Iraq, and I totally disagreed with that. And I felt like he was really kind of like what Sam Harris does. Yes, that that you can call them atheists or non-believers or anti-theists, but they especially are are, are not fond of uh, Islam, and that really 
that came through with Hitchens quite a bit. And I almost feel like that kind of informed his take on the Iraq war and um, why he supported it so fervently. So I love the work he did on, on Mother Teresa. I love the work he did on Henry Kissinger, the Clintons, like all, you know, all for that. But um, it, it's, it's unfortunate that he left us too soon because I think he really was an important voice. Um, but I, I certainly, I, I think Eric would probably agree, saw myself falling into almost like a evangelical atheist. And yes. it's like, that's just as bad as what you purport to be against. So I kind of stepped back and, um, you know, since then, have I, I still don't believe in religion. I don't believe in that there's a God watching us at all times or whatever you want to call it. Those are just my personal views, but I'm way more willing and accepting of everyone else having their own viewpoint. I don't yeah. get up, don't get upset about it. And I, I apply that to 9-11 too, Adam. And um, I've really kind of been looking into 9-11 seriously since like 2005, 2006. And around 2007, I started to question my views, especially on the Pentagon, because it, it was kind of dogmatic because a lot of people in the movement at that time mm. were convinced that it wasn't a plane and it wasn't Flight 77. But then I looked at some of the debunking stuff and you mentioned uh, the James Randi forum. Um, mm. I think it's a good idea to learn what your opposition and what the debunkers say about your argument and learn it inside and out. And uh, if you still are convinced, you know, what your argument is after looking at theirs, then you got solid ground. But uh, with the Pentagon, I, I started to shift in 07. And then that's when I really started to look into the geopolitical uh, implications of 9-11. So that's why I really think your research is so important. And, uh, and it's a, a unique perspective uh, within 9-11 because there's so many there's so many avenues to go and so many areas within 9-11 that it's it's. You know, like uh, um, we, we mentioned the, the Israeli, you know, angle There's a Pakistani angle, a Saudi angle. And uh, it's it's a lot to unpack for sure. There's, you know, if I could add a little bit to that. Yeah, you're right. And the, the finer details of 9-11 are in the geopolitical arena. And this is the reason why it was so ignored for so long is that um, it's something I, I try to elucidate in my videos as primitive as they are, I'm still using Movie Maker, by the way. Um, but uh, what I want to get across to people is the information. I don't need to embellish. And I wish I knew how to edit video in a more professional manner. I'm doing a little bit better at it. But um, I think what's more important than anything is to get across the information to a public that is not aware of the information or may be uh, too immersed in the uh, disinformation that is prominent, unfortunately, with 9-11. This is something that has really, I want to say, grinded my gears to a bit because I'm very antagonistic towards certain people. And, I, you know, I hate to say it, but like people like, uh, and I don't know how you feel about Jason Burmis or uh, David Ray Griffin, Christopher Bolin, Rebecca Wood. And I'm not in the least bit antagonistic towards their followers because I see them as victims. Now, they may feel that they're doing a right thing by producing uh, information, which is basically just uh, unvetted information, and some of it's downright false, and that they're bringing something new to the table, whether they're doing it to remain relevant or they're doing it for a profit or whether they're selling books or whatever merchandise or they're doing it for a far more nefarious reason, right? I tend to stay away from that because there's no evidence for it. Um, but 
I can say uh, with confidence that a majority of those people just don't realize what it takes to do unbiased research. And because this is the reason why I brought up my background regarding my experience with, uh, with religion is that I took a step back and looked at my own worldview and, and saw what I was doing wrong. And I needed to make a change within my life. And now I see, I don't see a black and white world. I don't cater to the schisms. I see a very gray world where everything is undefined, but not everything is, is, is what's alluded as fact to you is not fact at all. And that we're living a lie. And it's basically purported by, you know, the specific areas of government and the media. Um, and that's just here in the United States, but probably around the world, too. Um, but, yes, I mean, 9-11 itself, that, that, which you uh, brought up before, uh, Mike, the geopolitical angle has been completely ignored. And something I, I try to do as many videos as I can uh, to try and circumvent the disinformation. I, that's an uphill battle because so much disinformation. But I'm trying to influence the people that, that follow me, the very few. Um, I'm trying to push them to become not followers, but leaders so that they could do their own written work, their own videos. And I want them to become uh, even bigger channels than I am. And it's not because I want all the followers and I want everybody following me. No, what I want is a bigger audience so that they could create bigger audiences. And that's how you build a movement. Right. Yeah. You have uh, good information and that's, that will, if the information is really good and really solid, the people will come to that. Um, out of those researches you mentioned, I do know Jason Burmas personally. Um, I've, you know, I've been friends with him since like 2006, 2007. Um, I will say from my perspective that he is genuine and he is, he is a good guy. Uh, I certainly don't agree with him on everything. And um, I know that he's, he's up to be challenged and he's debated a lot of people from the press and, People who have written hit pieces about him. So um, I, I wouldn't, I, I, as far as his motives, from, from my personal view, I think his motives are pure. Um, and I, you know, but hey, we can, we can disagree with them about sure. certain not, areas. I just, can I just interject? Sure. I, I'm not an attack on his character. I don't know him personally, but his information regarding 9 11, specifically, uh, you know, drone aircraft, whatnot. I mean, yeah, it's false. Right. And I tried to, contact him. I mean, he, he once said, um, and I won't delve into this too much. It's not an attack on him. He, he did. In, um, I want to say he did a video with John Fitch, the MMA fighter. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge MMA fan. Uh, so where he said that, show me, oh, I'm sorry. No, it was an interview he did with John McDermott, um, from the New York, I want to say no vanity fair about two years ago where he said, and this was a challenge. He said, show me any plane crash that resembles Shankville. And he said this, and I will stop showing those clips. And I, first it was Nelson, DJ Thermal Detonator, who showed a video regarding PSA 1771. He put it on his Patreon. I did a video, and I don't have a Patreon. I did a video where I did a, um, a, a similar crash scene called German Wings 9525, where it was deliberately crashed into the side of the Andes. And I showed it to him. I uploaded it on um, YouTube and I showed it to him. And he, his response to me was, I was a troll. And I took that as a fence because, you know, look, I, this is my real name. This is my real face. You know, I take this seriously. And for him to do that, I said, no, that's not right. And I wonder why he said that. He just but called, I, he just called you a troll. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that either, Adam. I mean, anybody who puts their, 
actual name out there like us, like Ryan Dawson, sure. um, like Reed, like John Gold. I, John Gold is another early 9-11 researcher I have a lot oh, of respect, yeah. I have respect for. Um, and yeah, I mean, I haven't always agreed everything with Burmas, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that was right for him to just, if that's, if that's, he just, you know, you were just showing him the video and he just called you a troll. Um, I think the guy from the New York Times that he had on also mentioned that flight that you mentioned that was deliberately crashed. And he, he uh, from the video that I saw, he said that he wasn't uh, too familiar with it and he was going to watch it, but I, I haven't heard anything since. So I would definitely be very curious myself to mm -hmm. ask him about that because, you know, I do believe that Flight 93 crashed in Shanksville. Um, you know, whether it was something that happened on board, there could have been a bomb on board or it could have been taken down. And that's certainly those are two areas that you can talk about. Um, or whether it was the passengers that foiled it or whether the hijackers knew the passengers were coming in and they know they know it. I think those are all fair areas to talk about. But um, there's clearly plane debris there. And the coroner, Wally Miller, has since since said, yes, there were bodies and I identified them. I sifted through it. And uh, that's what happened. So that's why I really I don't focus on that area of 9-11. Hmm. I, I think that there's so much minutia and there's so much just around the mulberry bush that you can go with it just like the you know building seven or the destruction of the world trade center and there's people who are way more qualified to talk about those areas than myself yeah. right yeah and, and i'm with you adam um the the israeli angle i had a an uncle who was hip to that very early on and i don't know exactly how he knew about it but it was like to me it was long rumored that there was a group of young israeli men who were set up across the water in Jersey and they were filming what happened and they were celebrating and flicking lighters. And I always just kind of thought it was like an urban, urban myth, urban moving myth. Yeah. And uh, finally um, someone filed a FOIA freedom of information act for all the FBI files relating to the arrest of these guys and you know what they discovered and, and like transcripts of their conversations and all that. Mm. And this was probably 20, 14 2015 when i just took a night and i had them all in pdf form and well not a night but like several nights in a week and i just stayed up like for hours reading through all of the the transcripts of all these and i was just like i was dumbstruck i was like holy shit man these guys exist they're real guys uh th th these are their names they were arrested this is the stuff they said and then i don't know how i imagine you've dug very deep into these documents and the foyas but one one little blurb that really struck me was some of the people uh, who worked for urban, urban movers who were not the uh, dancing Israelis who were arrested were making anti-American comments and saying, you know, we're going to take over America. We're going to, you know, we'll, uh, we'll co-opt your media and all this stuff and, and all that. So I don't, I don't know how deep you've dug into that, but I think that's an area that a lot of people aren't really aware of or, or know a lot about. So after you know researching that and knowing about it, what, what would you say to the layman or a person who doesn't even have any idea about these guys being arrested and even know that there's an Israeli angle to the 9-11 story? Wow. Um, you know, I get this all the time. You know, just recently I had a conversation with um, two people in the 9-11 truth movement, and I gave them a word, a, um, a, note, a note text where I, it was about, 50,000 uh, words, but it was uh, a timeline of what led to the events of September 11th. And I couldn't make it shorter to make it sense sensible for them. And my the, the response was, can you simplify it? And I'm like, this isn't like World Trade Center 7 where you hear the, the mantra, 
did you know a third building fell that day? Yeah, that's catchy. And you could get a lot of people's attention that way. But how can I say to people, say, hey, do you know anything about urban moving systems? Do you know anything about uh, Israeli foreign policy of the United States? Do you know anything about Zionism? Do you know anything about Wahhabism? Do you know anything about able danger? Do you know there are so many avenues that we have to look down in order to coordinate a timeline of events pre 9-11? I might talk about 9-11. Pre 9-11, where somebody is just, and this is the, the, the global response of the truth movement, is that, oh my God, it's it's huge and this is too demanding, it's too threatening, it's too much work. And I just want it to be simply simplified. And I have a saying, you know, I made over the years, I said, you know, I wish 9-11 was as simple as truthers make it out to be, because if that was the case, I wouldn't have spent the last, uh, was it now, 15 years continuing to learn about the aforementioned subjects we mentioned before, uh, which I'm still learning to the very day relating to 9-11. And it's not just 9-11. 9-11 is just a pretext. You know, it's just a springboard for what's bigger now. I mean, uh, we spoke about this, uh, you know, before we recorded about the Iraq war. Well, Afghanistan war, uh, the Libyan conflict, Syria, um, the uh, uh, the uh, Patriot Act, the, uh, the NDAA, the implementation of fear. So much has happened. It still is a ripple effect. Everything, 9-11 is simply a moment in time where Iraq, is thrown into a river, and we are in the river following the ripple effects of 9-11. And I, I fear it is going to be to the rest of time. It has changed the entire landscape of human existence and what is happening in the globe right now. But pre-9-11, we have to go back at a certain moment of time. And I don't know, I always use 1979 as the springboard to, because if I could go further back about the ideologies about these people, about the history of how the intelligence services started with the United States and Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, what constructed Saudi Arabia, I mean, all this. You don't have to be an expert in all these areas. I'm just saying that you don't have to take it to what I'm doing. You just have to get a generalization of all these things to have an understanding about why 9-11 happened in the first place. Yeah, you mentioned 1979, so uh, probably when we propped up and, and supported the Mujahideen Network uh, with Zbigniew Brzezinski is, is, is specifically what one of the areas that you would go back to, um, to go against uh, the Soviet Union and, and calling them. And then, of the course, in the 80s, Reagan welcomed them to the White House and d dubbed them freedom fighters. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like that photo of... Of um, Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein in the '80s, and um, you know that there's that joke years later. It's like, if we, well, we we know they have weapons because we have the receipts. We sold them to them, right? So yeah, there, there's so many things with 9/11, and I and kind of what you alluded to. I think a lot of it's been memory hold, and a lot of the more sensationalistic stuff gets the coverage, especially during the anniversary. I mean, this year we had the 20th anniversary, and um, the media just continues to frame it in such a way and mm. have certain talking points. I mean, they still do it with Pearl Harbor 80 years on, you know, a day that will live in infamy and everyone shares a meme and says, never forget. And that's it. And, you know, we still have, we still have people who survived Pearl Harbor that are still with us, which is crazy to think about. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that's going to happen with 9-11. And unless we can go back to certain to key events in history that contributed to that day, we're not going to really have a full accounting or understand, you know, what led to it or, you know, why it happened or who was really involved. So it, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> yeah. The radical <laughs> fundamentalists, they hate us for our freedoms and go shopping. The, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. But if you listen to the statements of certain uh, of these terrorists, uh, you'll understand why they are attacking us. I mean, I always use the example of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Now, Ramzi Youssef was the alleged co-conspirator and maker of the bomb. And he gave the judge, I think it was Judge uh, Leo Glasser or Judge uh, Nicholson, where he basically allowed Ramzi Youssef to give a final statement to the court. And a lot of people will basically just say, oh, we don't want to hear from a terrorist. No, you want to hear from your preconceived enemy about why they were attacking you. And at no point during that test, the statement that he made, did he ever say that he hated the United States because we have the freedom to drink Coca-Cola or that our women are wearing uh, too short of a dress? No, what he did say was something that the United States government doesn't want you to hear. And that is because of our disastrous foreign policy, our uh, continued degradation and bombardment of certain Arab countries, because he did mention about the Gulf War. He did mention about the U.S. aid for programs, food sanctions on the Gulf, which led to 500,000 men, women, and children, most of them elderly and children that died. Uh, the uh, continued subjugation of Arab countries in the Middle East, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and as well as the previous incidents. In fact, he basically told them, and I'll quote you, he said, you're the terrorists. You're the one who used atomic bombs on civilians. We learned it from you. And so it, what I'm trying to say is, is that, yeah, he's still a terrorist. He's a killer. However, you can learn something from him because what he's doing is turning the mirror, not from himself, but to you. In that he learned this from you. He learned how to kill from you. And he's only responding to your efforts and your acts. And yes, I mean, when you look at it, you have to, it's, it's, it's really, um, I want to say it's really challenging for a person to basically look in his own persona or in his own backyard and say, wow, we need to make the necessary adjustment, uh, adjustments. Or if we're the global community, we need to focus on United States foreign policy in which that's what they don't want you to do. And that's the reason why they say, oh, they hate us for our freedoms. And it, there's a Muslim around every corner. Yeah. And, and, and they're doing that now with what's happened in the last two years with a different subject. We'll, we'll just call it the germ. Mm. They're using those same tactics and they're getting people very scared. And you don't even hear about terrorism anymore. It's almost like it went away and it doesn't exist. Mm. And it's not even part of the dialogue or the discussion. But I, I was 14 when 9-11 happened. And um, for the next couple of years, uh, class trips got canceled or parents wouldn't let their kids go into Boston because of the because you had ghouls like Tom Ridge on TV and you had Ashcroft and you had Cheney and you had Wolfowitz and you had Bush and Condoleezza Rice and all these people just constantly on TV with the fear. Like these, you know, in my opinion, these are the boogeymen of my childhood, not Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers. Right. You know, I view Tom Ridge as way more scarier than than any of them. And it's funny, we uh, we actually got to meet Tom Ridge at a Jeb Bush event a couple of years ago and we, we really trolled him. I mean, we were nice and respectful 
and I'll have to send you this link. It's actually on our channel. Um, we made oh, a, love to see that. we made a little video with Tom Ridge. And Eric Eric's doing Trump's impression. And Eric, just yeah, take it from here. Just tell them what you did. Yeah, we're backstage at this Jeb Bush event, and you know we went there just to just see it because in New Hampshire we have the access to all these clowns that is unbelievable. Um, and um, I was like, Mike, there's Tom Ridge. Like, let's go up and try to no, get a picture with him and no, kind of. No troll. one even knows who he is. No one knows who this guy is. By 2015, like a lot of people had forgotten about him. You know, he was he was the specter. I mean, yeah. Sorry, continue, Eric. Yeah. And, and right, so for Mike and I, we were freshmen in high school when 9/11 happened, and then subsequently, um, you know, with the media and the creation of Homeland Security, because Ridge Mike, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, was the first Homeland Security uh, uh, chair, like Secretary yeah. of Homeland Security. He had, he had originally been the governor of uh, Pennsylvania, I believe. That's right. Right. Yeah. So this guy's trotted out like Freddy Krueger every day, ad nauseum with his charts and his colors and the terror threat level. And it's yeah. it's it's red today. You know, it's, it reminds me of the variants with the germ. It's red today. It's blue today. It's orange today. Mm -hmm. You need to be this afraid today, but maybe not so afraid tomorrow. But in a week, we'll be even more afraid, you know. So mm -hmm. this guy, this guy was the boogeyman for Mike and I because we, we always paid attention to this kind of stuff. So to actually have an opportunity to walk up to this guy and see him in real life after he existed like the Wizard of Oz on TV for me in my high school years was a mm. surreal moment. So I said, hey, Tom, or I think I called him Governor. My name my name is Eric Jackman. I have a little podcast called Jackman Radio. I'd be honored if you would record a little plug for my podcast. He's like, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. I was like, all right, can you say hi? I'm Secretary Tom Ridge. And if you don't listen to Jackman Radio, we're going to raise the terror alert level to red. <laughs> <laughs> he looked at me. He looked at Mike. He's like, "I'm not gonna say that." <laughs> oh, I, I thought you could get him to say it. <laughs> so we we did. We got him to do a uh, like watered down little video with him, and um, it was it was just still a surreal moment. But um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know where that was going. But yeah, we we hung out with Tom Ridge for a few minutes. <laughs> Well, you I got, mean, you got close to the epitome of evil itself. Yes. Yeah, we, we've we've talked to a lot of these people. I mean, I confronted Jeb Bush in 2015 when he came to my uh, my city of Keene, New Hampshire, where I went to school, and uh, I got a chance to ask him about the uh, documents that he keistered from Huffman Aviation aboard that C-130, and ah, uh, yes. that's from that's from Daniel Hopsicker's research, uh, who yeah. actually in Florida. I know you had Robbie Martin on recently, man. There's so there's a wealth of information about Florida and the FBI's timeline and what the hijackers were doing down there. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and uh, going back to they hate us, you know, because of our freedoms, it's like, is, was, was Muhammad Atta really a guy who just hated us because of our freedoms? Or was he a dude who was cohorting with strippers and doing cocaine and drinking? I mean, it's that's a fair question, too. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I got to ask Jeb about taking those files. And uh, there's a video of that. I don't know if I've ever sent it to you, but I, I can send it to you and he was he was a little taken aback, but was um, we, we've had we've had very unique opportunities to talk to a lot of neocons. We actually lived up the road from Andy Card, the uh, oh. George George W. Yeah, the guy that whispered into Bush's mm. ear, and we we had him over to our house for a couple hours. He was on our podcast, and we treaded lightly. Well, you know, we were obviously respectful. We treaded lightly, um, but I asked him off the record several times about some of the. I asked him about the one of the subjects I want to talk to you tonight about, which is the alleged, you know, uh, foiled assassination attempt at the hotel in Florida. Yeah. Um, because, well, excuse me, that seemed to mirror 
an event that happened earlier that week with that anti-Taliban leader from the Northern Alliance, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I, I asked Andy Card about that. He was like, no, I don't know about that. So I don't know if he was, if he was he really didn't know anything about it or if he was just kind of pulled, you know, kind of yanking my chain a little bit, but he's got a script when it comes to 9-11 and he recites it very well. So they, they're all going to, in fact, you know, I, I was asked, um, I think I, I, who did I ask? I, I believe it was Mark Rossini when I interviewed him, the FBI agent who worked in Alex station. And um, I said, you know, Mark, what are the odds that I could probably get somebody from the CIA to talk? And he said, zero to zero. And it'll never come out and talk. Um, and they don't want uh, anybody to know about why they didn't share information, which was intentionally withheld, not withheld, but intentionally withheld. And I could definitely speak more to about that. And I think that's important as well. Like Richard, um, Blee, Richard Blee and um, Frederick Alfredo Bukowski. Yeah, that's right. That's out. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's correct. And that's 1999, Alex, 1996. Scheuer was the Michael Scheuer was the uh the, the chief of station at Alex Station. And yeah, um there seems yeah, to I be a real about narrative that. about that. About and, and John Kiriaku. I don't know. Have you had him on Darkened Hour, John Kiriaku? No, and I would love to I really would I'm glad I I was so happy that you guys talked to him. And that was a great, great episode. Very laid back, and I think that's why he gravitated towards you. Um, I would love to talk with that guy. I barely have conversations with him, but yeah, I would love to talk with him, especially about the torture program. Yeah, well, I'll see if we can connect you. I mean, he's pretty pretty candid and open about a lot. There's some stuff. There's certain areas where you can't go. And, and you, if before we turn the mic on, we're like, "Hey, all right, John, can we can we talk? Can we touch on this? Can we go here?" But he's he's pretty candid. I mean, he was in the agency, Eric. What, 13, 14 years? I think nineteen ninety to two thousand four. Oh, is that, okay. And I, really, I think okay. I think he was in fourteen years. Yeah, so no, he's a great, great resource for sure. Yeah, and I think John ultimately, like overall, Mike is pretty taken aback about what you and I know, and and like the names that you know, like specifically what you were throwing at him in our last interview with him, and and just just the, the knowledge, and and you know that we're thirty five, so when nine eleven happened, we were you know we were fourteen, fifteen year old kids, yeah. so I think he's just kind of like, how the hell, why do you guys know this stuff? <laughs> well, like you were saying, Adam, we don't, I don't have like we don't have kids, I don't have a family, so I got time to read this right. shit. <laughs> I, I have a friend of mine at work, and I, I tend to forget the names of the people I, I run across, simple names like Jims and William. And she she tells me, she goes, you know, why don't you make believe everybody's here in Guantanamo, and then you could remember their names, because I know Arab names. And um, I thought that was funny. Well, um, that's that's a basic thing, too. Most Americans don't even know the name of the hijacker pilots that crashed these planes. Yeah, that's and I think that, that's a problem. Sure. You know, Especially for problem. people that, you know, claim to have an investment in 9-11, but they can't know who Marwan al-Shehi is. Yeah. Uh, there was, uh, I remember uh, a great example of this would be um, I was in a, uh, a discussion at Discord, and I used a picture of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And um, uh, nobody, nobody knew what the picture was. And a friend of mine uh, was talking, he goes, uh, it's funny because all these people are New Yorkers and they don't even know who the guy in your picture is. And I was right, doing it for months. For months. Master, mastermind. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, the alleged mastermind 9-11. Uh, wow. But yeah, it's, it's it's incredible what people don't know and that they should know. 
and that's important. And the areas that we'll be talking tonight is what I'm trying to help uh, share with the public. Yeah, so out of all the ones that we kind of introduced, what's the one that you really think connects with people who might not be as familiar with these topics or the one that just makes you go like, I mean, come on, if this isn't a blatant cover-up or abuse of power or or showing is an illustration that there's something seriously wrong with the official story, um, this is it. So which, you know, which area and, and, and why do you think that? Oh, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I could pick out a number. Um, but one area that really stands out to me and is something that I share uh, very much in common with um, Mark Wasini is the CIA Alex station and their withholding of information. And when I talk about the subject, it is really largely ignored altogether or just not acknowledged by the mass public. And of course, you're not going to hear this from the media. You're not going to hear this from any really uh, – anybody, I guess, in the truth movement, because I haven't seen it. And um, very few people like Paul Thompson, Kevin Fenton, um, Ray Nolowiski, and uh, Abby Martin, Robbie Martin, John Gold. And uh, these guys have tried for years to uh, shine this message about CIA malfeasance. And not only malfeasance, but I can make a great argument about them having even foreknowledge about 9-11. That's a daring statement, I know. But I could probably give you a very good argument regarding that. And not only them, but the one agency that hardly anyone ever mentions is the National Security Agency, the NSA. And it's something that I have been trying to um, bring a little bit more attention recently uh, regarding two operations that they had. And if you want, I could discuss, discuss this further. Yeah, if you want to go into this this sure. area of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and well, I'll just I'll try not to, you know, throw an hour's worth at you. So the uh FBI here in New York were investigating an individual by the name of um Kali, uh Nadal Ayak. Uh, not Nadal, I'm sorry. Um Ziad Khalil. And it was his connection with Hamas. At that time, Israel had a very interest, a large interest in Hamas and Hezbollah in the early 90s, late 1980s. And the FBI was doing a sting on this Hamas fundraiser in New York. And so this guy was basically looking to buy a satellite phone. And it was a compact satellite phone he bought in a storefront in Long Island, New York. And the FBI told the NSA, hey, listen, we're doing an investigation uh, regarding his links with Hamas. Could you basically tap the phone and decrypt it? And the phone was decryption. It wasn't an encrypted satellite phone, which made the NSA, you know, encrypt the phone right away and listen to the phone calls. Well, that phone then traveled to Virginia to an individual by name Khalid Al-Fawaz. Khalid Al-Fawaz then took that phone and sent it to Torbor, Afghanistan, where it landed into the hands of Osama bin Laden. The FBI had no idea, none whatsoever, where this phone was going to land. And so the NSA was listening to the phone calls of Osama bin Laden from 1992 to 1998. Now, just imagine how many people were calling that phone, talking about God knows who and God knows what. And, you know, when you look at six years of phone calls. So I wrote an article on Medium, and I there was this one number that was kept popping up, and it was a house in Sana, Yemen, the capital of Yemen, Sana. 
And they were interested. Why is this number really calling bin Laden and bin Laden calling it? And it was a red flag. It was an important number. So they find out that the person who owned this house was owned by a person named Ahmed al-Hada. And he was actually an associate of bin Laden from the Soviet-Afghanistan War of 1979. And so they started tapping the phones of not just bin Laden's satellite phone, but the house in Yemen. And that started in 1996. Now, the NSA will say, we started tapping the phone in 1998, but according to the CIA and the FBI, they discredited, they said, as soon as they found out about that number, they tapped that number. So I would say from 1996 to 2002, that operation was active. So that means that they were listening to the phone calls of Bin Laden's satellite phone from 1992 to 1996 and the house in Yemen from 1996 to 2002 talking about and listening to God knows who, to God knows what. And you could just imagine what they were talking about those phones. Now, we don't know because the transcripts are not public and you know they're not public because I would say this. Let's just say they were talking about 9-11 on those phones. That would mean that the NSA didn't share this information with the CIA, with the State Department, or the Department of Defense. Nobody. Right. Or that nobody was talking about 9-11. So that would mean that the people involved with 9-11 weren't really involved. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that at no point, whether the NSA knew or didn't know, no, at no point are they going to come out good in this situation. Now, the CIA heard about from their contact with the NSA that the NSA had a line in Yemen. So they put a bug inside the Yemen house and they took over the operations. And because it's a foreign operation, they're in charge. And so they can only listen to half of what was being said in the house. They couldn't listen to the phone. So the person in charge of Alex station, which is the bin Laden issue station, which is a virtual station made up of different competing agencies within the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, the DI, and all these agencies. But they hated sharing with one another. And they hated the fact that there was an FBI unit from New York there because they hated John O'Neill head of the counterterrorism unit, I-49 unit. They despised him. And it was basically Scheuer hated him so much because Scheuer wanted to be seen as the authority on religious fundamentalism matters. John O'Neill was just as good. And so he hated that competition. It was basically an ego uh, measuring contest. So they didn't share information with the FBI. And that's where it came from. So the NSA, according to Thomas Drake, the former senior executive of the NSA, he basically said that the NSA had so much metadata, enormous, and we're talking about enormous amounts of metadata, that they could have stopped 9-11 from happening altogether. Not only that, that they probably had uh, information regarding the 1998 East Africa bombings, the uh, Millennium Plot, and uh, anything from 1998 and beyond. The coal? I yeah, mean, probably the coal, but the I coal mean, actually happened. So wasn't John O'Neill the in charge of that investigation too? Yes, he was. And they took they took him off it? They well the FBI went to investigate. And when when they went to investigate the US uh Yemen ambassador Barbara Bodine uh got the unpleasant uh experience of dealing with John O'Neill and it wasn't John O'Neill's fault. Uh she basically didn't like the way he came across because 
she said that he was meddling in too much the affairs of the Yemeni people, but he was very aggressive. And he knew that there was a large Al-Qaeda affiliate operating in Yemen. And she didn't want to ruin the uh, hegemony between the Yemenis and the United States. And she went to the director, Louis Free, and she said, hey, listen, I don't want John O'Neill here. Could you get him off? And they basically said yes. And they, John O'Neill left, regretfully. He didn't, uh, reluctantly. And he told Ali Soufan, who was with him, and he said, stay and try to get as much information as you can. And basically, the Yemenis were stalling. They didn't want to give too much information. And they feared that there was al-Qaeda affiliates inside law enforcement. Um, and so that continued to drag on. And um, the NSA and the CIA collected a lot of metadata. And, when I'm, and after all that, there was a cable that came in to the, to the CIA. And there was a high, let me back up a little bit. There was a high-level Al-Qaeda meeting in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. In 2000. And, yeah, in January of 2000. And all the big wigs, all the big terrorist organizations from Jemaah Islamiyah, Indonesia, Al-Qaeda, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was there, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, Khalid al-Madar, Nawaf al-Hadmi. Now, the NSA heard about this meeting on the phone. And so they don't got pictures. They don't do human intelligence. They do signals intelligence. They told the CIA, hey, listen, there's a meeting in Malaysia. We want you to go there, take pictures, and please send the pictures back to us. The CIA told the Malaysian authorities about the meeting. And so they went there. And they took pictures of all the people coming in and out. Allegedly, there was video. Now, that's coming from the CIA. So we, we don't know the video because they said, oh, uh, Malaysian video, uh, Malaysian authorities kept the video. Leave that what you will. Anyway, they took photographs. They sent it to Alex Station, shared it with the counterterrorism unit. They got the photographs, but they never shared it with the NSA. Never did. So the agencies are not sharing. It's, it's, uh, the budget. Yeah, yeah. Just, exactly. That's my, dude, that's my experience. Like, it, oh it, my God. it gets to a point, Adam, where it's like that bullshit excuse doesn't fly anymore. That Right, this, but it also leads – but you can't blame conspiracy theorists for saying, oh, they wanted this to happen because – a part of me says, yeah, I can understand why. Well, not only that with the Malaysian summit, but they actually got people to go into the hotel and make copies of, of the two of the later hijackers' identification and I think their their visas, if, I, if, if I'm uh, mistaken. Okay, you're not far off. So what happened was when they or left... Their license? The, um, yeah, when they left the meeting, they went to um, a hotel in uh, United Arab Emirates. And while they were there, the CIA broke in where they left the room and they took pictures of the photographs. Now there's some conspiracy. Now some conflicting arguments here. Now, according to HistoryCommons.com, this it was taken a hotel. On the other hand, it goes back to the point that you raised, Mike, that they that they were the the, the passports were photographed in the condominium owned by Yazid Sufat, who's an um, an Indonesian businessman, and he has links to Jemaah Islamia. Um, what either way. Those pictures then went to Alex Station, and they now have on the well, passports dual entry visas inside the United States. So that means that Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Hadmi, two men who were filed by the CIA for years, had who had links to the USS Cole bombing, who had links to the East Africa bombings, knew these guys were bad, knew they were coming inside the United States. And when that cable came in early in the morning, and I don't know when what what day it was. 
but it was read by the head of the Yemen station. I mean, um, the Yemen hub, uh, who's a CIA analyst at Alex station. And I'll give you her name. Her name is Michelle Ann Casey. Her nickname is Michael in some books because they're not allowed legally to tell you the name. Marco Cidi can't, but I can. But her, her name is Michelle Ann Casey. Now, she read the cable. She showed it to the deputy chief, the second in command of Alex Station, Tom Wilshire, and they read it. Now, the third person to read the cable was an FBI agent named Doug Miller. And Doug Miller saw this and was like, oh, my, they're inside the United States. I'm sharing this with the FBI. So he drafts a cable along with the attachment of the CIA cable to the FBI cable warning them these guys are coming to the United States. And when they come to the United States, they could start monitoring these guys right away. But he has to get authorization because it's CIA information. So the cable now goes to Tom Wilshire. And Tom Wilshire has to make a decision. And the decision is whether I can share this information or not with the FBI. He tells Michelle Ann Casey, says, hold off per Wilshire. And it's on the cable, hold off per Wilshire from sending. For days, it's not sent. The email is just languishing languishing in the folder. Marco Sini, who's detailed from the FBI to Alex Station, he goes to Michelle and Casey, he says, hey, what's the holdup with the sending of the cable? And so she tells him, and I'll do the try to quote the best I can, it's not an FBI matter. We think the next attack is happening in Southeast Asia. It's not FBI jurisdiction. Now, when we want the FBI know, we'll let them know. And so... What this does is that, yes, the FBI has no jurisdiction outside the United States in involving terrorism matters. It's a CIA matter. And that's exactly the point of the reason why they didn't want to tell them. Now, if you want to be a little bit more nefarious and conspiracy-minded, you could say that certain people, not everybody, at CIA wanted these guys to go along with the operation. Because if they, if they talked about 9-11 on the phone, the NSA knew. And if that's the case, the NSA and the CIA knew because they were talking about at Yemen Hub. Because the Yemen Hub, they could still listen. To yeah. Hub. And, you and mentioned so they want, either they wanted it to happen so that these guys could go unobstructed by the FBI. That's a day. I'm, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, you mentioned Ray Nowashelsky too. Um, his, his book, The Watchdogs, didn't bark. I, a lot of this information, I think, is in that book. And um, but yeah, when nine eleven happened, there were there were CIA employees who came in and heard about the news, and they were just in tears because yeah, they were they were like, we were trying to do our job when we got obstructed, and things were not passed up the chain. They were not shared into you know with interagency. So yeah, it's it's not. Of course, it's not everybody that's. There's great people that work for government agencies, regular people who are doing Absolutely. their nine to five. They they're protecting America. They believe they're protecting America, and they're they're good, genuine people. But there are people who get to political positions within these organizations that that have vested interests and are, could, could be profit driven, or could they could be being blackmailed? I mean, who knows? So, yeah. Well, also, when I think of Kofor Black Adam um, with Nawaf Al Hasmi and Khalid Amidar out in California, they're the two guys out in California, right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Now, is there any credence to that? Maybe the CIA or just a small group that Kofor Black was running was trying to flip those guys, and that's why, you know, you had the twenty-eight pages, and you had like, you know, let's not put too much heat on these guys and the money they're getting out there in California. Is there anything to that, or do you think that's nonsense? Oh, it's viable, and I've heard this before. In fact, one of the very first videos I ever saw 
for the the first video I saw Ray Nolowski did was the interview with Richard Clark. You're familiar with that interview. And Richard Clark shares the same sentiment. He thinks that Kofor Black was aghast that the CIA counterterrorism unit didn't have a spy inside Al-Qaeda. And so in 1999, Tenet told Black he wanted to implement a plan. And the name of the, the plan was the plan, uh, real original there. But the plan was to implement uh, the CIA to build uh, listing stations in Afghanistan and build uh, camps using Afghanis from the Northern Alliance to surround Al-Qaeda bases and to collect as much intelligence as they can. And so they did. And there was a lot of intelligence that was uh, coming from the Northern Alliance. And that, too, wasn't shared with the State Department or the FBI or anybody else for that matter. Um, regarding turning them as spies, I have a problem with this, and I'll tell you why is that Khalid al-Midar and Wafahabi had less than rudimentally basics of the English language. If you're going to turn somebody from al-Qaeda as informants, um, the CIA, one of the main complaints about the CIA was, and this is coming out in the joint inquiry and the 9-11 commission uh, by Kofor Black and George said was, we lacked personnel and we lacked personnel who spoke Arabic or Farsi and we needed more funds to broaden the counterterrorism unit. And um, I'm sorry, the CIA basically were following bin Laden and Al-Qaeda since the very early 1990s, even when bin Laden was in the Sudan in 1992. Um, and I think that, you know, they were they were knowledge about bin Laden even before that. I think even uh, while he was in Afghanistan at the time. Knowing this, you would think that they would have Arab linguists in which they would try to turn Al-Qaeda associates or Al-Qaeda members while they were in Afghanistan long before Khalid al-Minar and Nawaf Fahadbi showed along. Um, whether they wanted to turn them and recruit them as triple spies, well, they should have learned their, uh, from previous examples. And what I'm trying to tell you is that Ali Mohammed, who is an Egyptian service member in the United States Army in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, he was an informant for the CIA. He was also an informant for the FBI. He was also loyal to two known terrorists, Osama bin Laden and Omar Abdel Rahman, an Egyptian radical cleric known as the Blind Cleric, who was involved with the 1990 World Trade Center bombing and the Landmarks plot. And so he was playing them all along. And you would think that they would learn their lessons from this. And no, um, this is the reason why I don't think it was about turning them. Uh, but I don't dismiss it either. Yeah, what Clark says about that, I think, is a little suspect. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting thing, and and, and I, I've run that by a few of my friends who work for the government, and they, they had, hadn't heard that, but they were they were interested in it. But um, talking about a double and triple agent, I wanted to mention the uh, ISI connection, um, that fellow Omar Sheikh who was released from prison this year in Pakistan, who's probably the guy who actually murdered Daniel Pert. Well, not may mm. not have actually physically beheaded him, but certainly lured him in, um, you know, through trust uh, in late 2001, early two, I think they, they Daniel Pearl was February of 02 is I think when they, they said that he had been killed, but basically this guy, Omar Sheikh was British intelligence connected, CIA connected and Pakistani intelligence connected and uh, was an asset for, for all of those um, entities um, but also connected, you know, to, to terrorist activity. So you had this guy out in the field. It's like, 
where, where is true, where are his true alliances? And I think I think there's a lot of that that we don't ever hear about. So I think you that played you're right. Yeah, he, he had Omar Saeed Sheikh is a, a known Pakistani terrorist. Um, he was a creation or influenced heavily by the Pakistan Inter-Service Intelligence Agency known as the ISI. Um, one thing about the ISI uh, throughout their history is that a, they are primarily the influence behind the Taliban and even creating a terrorist organization called Jaish-e-Mohammed, which is basically a terrorist organization that is operating within the borders of India and Pakistan to supplement the Indian uh, authorities and their uh, organizations as well, conducting bombings and kidnappings and what have you. Saeed Sheikh comes from that background, and Saeed Sheikh has a long history uh, involving himself with uh, kidnappings, um, involving himself with uh, terrorist organizations uh, such as Lakshar e Taiba, um, the uh, the Taliban to an extent. Um, and he was also involved with the um, a hostage situation involving, um, I want to say it was Indian Air uh, 7, uh, no, I think it was, uh, damn it, it was a night, it was a uh, part of the uh, Millennium bombings plot. Oh, I'm sorry, it was Indian Airlines Flight 814, where they uh, negotiated um, a release of transfer of four uh nationals and, and Omar Saeed Sheikh in which they comply and compiled. Um, but he was also involved with the kidnapping of American and British nationalists. I think it was in, in 1994. This guy was really involved with a lot of things. At the same time, it came out later uh, through reports after the 9-11 attacks that he was trained by uh, two members of the um, Pakistan ISI. And he was also involved with the capture of, as you said, uh, New York Times reporter Daniel Pearl, in which Daniel Pearl went to Pakistan to. I think he was uh, Wall Street Journal. I got to correct you there. I think oh he was yes, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> sorry, See, sorry. I'm, go ahead. I, I'm not perfect after all. <laughs> so thank none you very of, much. None of us. Yes. But if we all put the hive mind together, we can solve this thing, Adam. Believe me. <laughs> there were people celebrating all across the waterfront, but it wasn't who you think it is. <laughs> yeah. In fact, in fact, um, Daniel Pearl was a very uh, daring reporter going all the way to um, Pakistan, Lahore. And he basically set up a meeting between this conduit he found while he was in Pakistan to talk about the ISI and the money transfer between Sheikh and uh, the uh, deputy director of the ISI, Mahmoud Ahmed, in which that money went to Saeed Sheikh and that money went to Mohammed Atta, the alleged ringleader of 9-11. And Pearl went to investigate it. And when he went there, he met with this conduit and he basically said, I'm going to help you um, interview the guy who basically set up that meeting. And when he went there, he was kidnapped. And while he was kidnapped there, they basically didn't know what to do with him. And so they coordinated maybe uh, maybe we can, you know, uh, hold him for ransom. So they all of a sudden this contact contacted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who's uh, now hiding in Pakistan because of the 9-11 attacks. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed basically said, yeah, I'm going to take over this operation. And um, he found that Pearl was Jewish and he beheaded him in a, in a, in a small, you know, muddy home. 
And um, do you think it was actually KSM who who did it himself personally, or because there is some discrepancy? Yeah, there is. You you would be right about that. Now, according to the FBI, they basically found out through veins in his hand, through vein identification. Um, I forgot the name of the uh, thing that they used, but the the veins in his hand basically match up with the hands his vein in his hand that he's currently held in Guantanamo. I'm not going to say that it was him or didn't him. There is a lot of mystery behind that. Whether it was him or not, I think it's a regardless. What the bigger issue is, is that Pearl went to investigate the the investigation between the ISI and their handling with their coordinated terrorists who are there behind and 9-11. And that's what's yeah. lost in all this. It is. So, and it's, it's very fascinating. And, I, and I've, I've looked at this area pretty extensively. And I, I really don't believe it's been totally explained away or debunked because a lot of this information does come from um, – Indian media, which of course is not going to be favorable to Pakistan, um, but it's also a story from um, agents Fr uh, French press, I believe, from French media. I mean, this this is a credible story, and this ISI chief was actually in Washington D.C. meeting with officials from our government uh, the the week of 9/11 and the morning of 9/11. Porter Gossi um, and Biden. He Go met ahead. with he met with Joe Biden, which is a little nugget that I dug up on Paul Thompson's terror timeline. And I wrote up a question and the question got to Biden when he was in New Hampshire. And um, he said, oh, we, we didn't know that he was funding terrorism. And but I, I issued him an ultimatum. I said, if Pakistan isn't with us, then, you know, you're against us and, and, and you have to make a decision whose side you come down on. Um, and then he was asked about it again. And he said, oh, that's classified. So this is our current president, folks. Uh, meeting with one of the alleged and most likely paymasters of 9-11. And you're only talking about, um, well, no, you were talking, if you believe the official story, the operation costs between $400,000 and $500,000. So you're talking about like a big chunk of change in this whole operation. So sure. that's just an area that just never gets mentioned. I mean, it, it received a little bit of play and then it was on like the seventh page and the 10th page. And then eventually you just... You didn't see it again. Like a if I could add a little bit to that, you know, when you bring up the ISI and why we're talking about it, how does this fit in with 9-11, is that once you get an understanding about what the ISI is about, is that the ISI is basically a, a very nefarious organization. One of my longest articles I ever written was about the ISI and the history of it. And when you look at the history of the ISI and how much they're involved with the formation of all these Salafist Al Qaeda affiliate groups that cause terrorism, not just you know in the region, but also in the United States as well. You'll notice that there's a strange, uh, almost this like uh, coordination between the ISI and the CIA. And when you involve that conduit, you also involve foreign intelligence, and that leads to Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the GID. That's the General Intelligence Directorate, and how they could become immersed because Israelis and Saudis they can influence or imp or institute themselves in groups like Al-Qaeda because they speak Arabic and because they know better. And the CIA, whether it goes back to your question about the CIA, whether they tried to turn Khalid al-Minar into Wafahadmi, well, I would submit to you that the Israelis and the Arabs, they basically can do it better. And that I would happen to believe, now this is something, take this with a grain of salt, I'm speculating here. Al-Qaeda is not some, you know, really strict organization regarding security. And there's a book by um, Eamon Dean called um, uh, Nine Lives, where he says that he worked with British MI6 and he uh, 
instituted himself in Al-Qaeda and met with the top leaders there. You know, uh, Mohammed Atef, the military commander, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ayman al-Swahiri, you know, Osama bin Laden. And all it took was a few months. Now, just imagine what Saudis and Israelis, you know, they can do. Pakistan ISI can do. They speak the language. They know the controlled traditions and the culture of Al-Qaeda and these terrorist groups better than the Americans can. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that they probably were infiltrating these groups long before 9-11. And that's how they, you know, the intelligence apparatus is information is power. And with information, you can control kings and queens, presidents and vice presidents anywhere in the world. And we're seeing that with the Epstein case, what information could really do, hold blackmail against you, right? Now, just imagine that on the much bigger scale regarding 9-11, all these intelligence agencies involving domestic and foreign, what they could do with this intelligence, hoard it. And that's the reason why they hoard it is so that they can manipulate organizations and terrorists before they even happen. Yeah. Do I think 9-11 was an Arab construction? Absolutely. But I think that the Israelis and the Americans got wind of the operation and they manipulated it in allowing it for it to happen so that they could take advantage of what comes from it. And what came after 9-11 is much bigger than what happened on 9-11. Yeah, I feel that way too. When people ask me like what happened or who did it or all of that, um, you, you know, some people get into the territory where, no, it was just completely a Mossad operation and they were puppeteering right. or the hijackers were patsies and they didn't even exist. But that that's right. that's a that's a far fetch because these guys did exist. And there's so much evidence of them existing and there's them caught on cameras, boarding the plane, all that stuff. So I'm, I'm not in that school, but I'm with where you said, Adam. I really believe that um, elements of Israeli military intelligence or Mossad caught wind or they, they knew about it and they were following these guys. You know, the, the movers, the Israeli movers, that just to me, that is just like they, they, they knew of an Al-Qaeda operation and a plot that was happening and they were monitoring them and following them. And then maybe some people like Kofor Black or high level people within the CIA or wherever they, they knew something was going on too, but like they had their reasons or their motivations to not blow a whistle or, or stop it. Because like you said, what the results of it and then what these actors were able to do with that afterwards has just been 20 years of just a, a stain on humanity. And, and and benefited people who profit off human suffering and misery. So, right, you talk about now. This is exactly the meat of the whole 9/11. Is that the foreign policy, right? And when when we look at these terrorist operations and why they they happened and whatnot, we got to remember that the real influences, the real powers, you know, behind these corporate interests like the military-industrial complex, private military-industrialists, fossil fuel industry, the bankers. There's a foreign policy outlet, you know, neocons, what have you, hard left, hard right. There's no such thing. There's an apparatus in place. It's the highest levels of government. And they're influenced by many variables, whether it's the foreign lobby institutes of Israel or Saudi Arabia, or they're influenced by, like I said, the gun industry or the military lobbyists. All these come into play. And there is no left and right paradigm. And they have foreign policy outlines and guidance well before 9-11 happened. I spoke about this in a video I made uh, regarding the Oded Yunnan plan, for example, 
which basically is something that the Israelis said, oh, that's all conspiracy. But if you look at the, the outlet itself, you look at the doctrine, you're like, now you you know look at it 2020, like, wow, a lot yeah. of this is coming true. It's happening. Not that's the that, balkanization of the Middle East, the Yanom that's plan. Correct. That's right, right, Eric. That's right. And you also have the Paul Wolfowitz doctrine, which is basically similar to the old Yanom plan, but not totally. And then later that became the Bush doctrine and of course the project for new American century. All of this comes into play, but they need an incident to happen in order to enact it. Well, 9-11 was that incident. And it's not too far-fetched for anyone to think that, hey, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, Arabs, and the U.S. coalition, and they need this to happen in order to have these outlines and guidelines and foreign policy programs to come to fruition. It's not so hard to believe that when you look at the current disposition of what we're doing in Iraq, for example, or in Afghanistan. And if you want to say, oh, they wouldn't allow 3,000 of our own Americans to die in order to do this, it would be abhorrent. Well, compare that to what they did in Iraq, for example. Two civil wars, a war that was based on lies whatsoever, and a million point three to a million point six people were killed. A million. And when you look at that number, it pales to what happened on 9-11. Did 9-11, those people were expendable. And, you, you know, they don't care about us. I mean, you just mentioned it before that, you know, we're we're not important in their eyes. Well, you're right. And it's horrifying for an American to look at that and say, well, no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do this to us. Well, they're doing worse. Well, they're because, still they're still uh, creating young veterans who are missing limbs, and if oh, sure. they're, if they're lucky enough to come back without missing limbs, they have scars and damage to them that's not visible but but mental. And sure. you have they say twenty they say thirty veterans a day. I think it's higher committing suicide. And we we only hear about that once or twice a year. Never forget honor our veterans, support the troops. How about don't don't send them over there in the first place right. based on lies and bullshit. Right. So. I totally agree, man. This is this is a larger thing about how the how the powers that be and the profiteers view humanity, and that's the lens that they view it through. It's a profit-driven, uh, you know. They want power. They want you know. They want the upper edge over you know other because it's basically like it, it's a global mafia. It's not one that's all working together, but they some they sometimes do work together and they sometimes compete against each other. But this is just a profit-driven death machine that doesn't care about humanity, no matter what color their skin is or what country or what border they supposedly exist behind. So right. that's, how, that's how I view the event personally also. Oh, no, I, I agree with every word that you just said there. And it's something that you guys have been talking about for, for years and years. And it's something that we're trying to present to the people is that, hey, listen, yeah, it's not too uh, far-fetched to believe that certain institutes of the government are not working in our best interests. I mean, my God, just take a look at history, right? And we don't even need an alum to do that. I mean, you know, take a look at uh, the Vietnam War, the Iraq First Gulf War, and certain instances of the CIA, you know, committing coups in Iran, Argentina, Central America. I mean, you know, the list is endless. And when you when you when you look at this in a much bigger picture, and when you look, you have to look at it on, without these rose-colored glasses, you know, without any prejudice. That's something I talked about earlier in the in the video with you, you have to look at it outside the lens of the schisms. And nationalism is the big one. Right, exactly right. And you'll notice that there's much more uh, gray area than there is a black and white area because it's not as simple as that. And yeah, it is enormous. And yeah, it's intimidating to say the least. 
But man, if we don't address this problem, uh, it's only going to get worse. And if you are someone who who is who considers themselves a patriotic American, and you believe in nationalism. Well, then the people that did this who were profiteering, these people are traitors. I mean, these are, yeah. these are not Americans. These these are not pro-American forces. These are uh, these are globalists. These are you know entities that are that purely exist based on power and profit. So you know if you can identify it as such, I, I, I mean, however people choose to identify it, but. It's just sad that we're still so caught up in the whole left-right thing, like you were talking about earlier. Um, this is way beyond that. They just use that as punching Judy, boxing match, bread and circus to get people amped up and divide, uh, divided and against each other. And uh, they're still doing a great job with that. And certainly, the last what's happened the last two years has not helped. So that's why I think it's still important to talk about 9/11 and bring these issues to light. So, uh, you know, thank you for, you know expanding on uh, on that yeah sure and look and it, you know i a lot i know a lot of people they watch my videos and say wow you know um i don't understand this and that and that's why i try to be all so on hands with people because when i first started you know, i didn't have anybody to go to either and it's hard to talk about these subjects without having somebody who can you know assist you along the way and that's why i'm, I'm you know try to be as personal as i can to people yeah, well, it's, it's you know, your average person is so bogged down by their daily lives, their jobs, their family, their responsibilities. By the end of the week, they, they don't want to look at this stuff. It's it's sure. it's absolutely horrifying. But uh, for whatever reason, you know, the three of us have the foundation, foundational knowledge and awareness that we do have. And I just feel it's important. And I almost feel like it's our duty to tell people about this because the mainstream media exists to do the opposite and hide all this knowledge that we know or make fun of us or call us crazy or we're conspiracy theorists or, you know, we're, we're this and we're that, but, um, you know, we're actually right about this stuff. And, and you, Adam, man, you just, I know that you just spend hours on end going through just documents and reading about stuff and connecting dots and putting it out there in a consumable way for people. So, you know, I just want to thank you for all, all that you do. It's a real service uh, to humanity and to our country and uh, just to try to elevate awareness and consciousness of the stuff. And, and obviously, I know the three of us, we think about this kind of stuff every day because we're still feeling the impacts from 9-11 every day. And and just the, the less and less, the farther away the event gets from us, the more that they're just going to get away with and they're going to keep sliding the scale uh, towards totalitarianism and complete erosion of our civil liberties in the way that we should be living our lives. So um, it's just, it's nice to connect with someone who is, is, is on the level and, and, and has, uh, you know, the uh, wherewithal to dig through this stuff because it is really dark stuff and it can be very isolating when you're going through it. Sure. And I, you know, I appreciate the compliments, but you know um, I'm not anybody special, you know, I'm operating out of my own bedroom. Um, and uh, like I said, I only have time. And uh, yeah, what I'm, I'm not meeting somebody in the garage getting secret documents. I'm sharing public information. And it's the information that people aren't privy to because they're so bogged down by information, disinformation and misinformation. And like you said before, Eric, is that um, people have you know lives to do. They have children and jobs and they don't have the necessary time that I have where we're afforded to regarding to look at the deeper issues of geopolitics and the documents and files that we could read and the books that we could read, you know, in a longer duration than the average person. It is my duty. And it's my duty because 
uh, I'm not getting anything out of it other than I want a educated public because I want to create, I, I try and help shape or push a movement to bigger individuals who could do more than me. You know, I don't want to be, you know, the face of 9-11 or the truth. No, that's not what I was here for. I'm here to try to do my civic duty to help educate the public responsibly about this specific event. That's all I'm trying to do. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, I, I hope well, you're, you're doing it, Adam. You're not trying to do it. You are doing it. So <laughs> I certainly, speaking for myself, and I know Mike, man, we, we appreciate what you do. And uh, I'm glad to be connected. So I just got some some chats here that I'll put up. No. Oh, yeah, go through a couple chats. Yeah. And we, we want to do this again, too, Adam. We want to have Nelson on, too. So oh, he's, yeah. he's the <laughs> best. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, ABBA is, is one of the best bands ever. That's true. Well, uh, I won't disagree with that. They got their new album out of a big fan. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Slayer man myself, and I also <laughs> do the Smiths. So. Do you listen oh, to yeah. Anthrax, too? Yes, I do. Well, slay. I don't so slay. No pun intended. That's what we do to the official story. We slay that shit. Impeccable memory recalling all these events and names. It does. It takes it takes some time to get to that level where you just can pull a name out of your hat yeah. like that. Yeah, you don't even know what you had for breakfast yesterday, but you know who were the, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even know the regular. Well, my, my next door neighbor. <laughs> How about this, uh, Adam, real quickly, if you know anything about this? I recall hearing that Yusuf claimed FBI sting agents assisted him in getting explosives and even urged him to proceed with the first World Trade Center garage bombing. Did I imagine that? No, you didn't. Um, this is also a um, something that's misconstrued a bit. Just a bit. So he's, he's not totally off the bat here. But he hints on something that um, I'd like to talk about a little bit in general. Um, Yusuf was actually called in because Imad Salem, who's an FBI agent out of Egypt, uh, he was recruited by the FBI to uh, act as a, uh, a conduit between the FBI counterterrorism unit and the uh, radical fundamentalist unit in a mosque called Al-Farouk, which is located in Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York. And it came to their attention that there was a, a lead imam there named Omar Abdel Rahman, who I mentioned previously. And they knew who this person was because back in 1990, again, um, he was a radical fundamentalist group called uh, Gamma Islamiyah. And he was a known terrorist. And he went to um, a U.S. embassy in Cairo, Egypt. And he went to file for an application for a U.S. visa. While he was there, it just so happened that the CIA case officer was acting as a embassy officer and approved his application. Not once, not twice, but three times. And so he came to the United States. And while he was inside the United States, he's followed by the FBI. FBI monitors him. So they want to get somebody inside the group. So they recruited this guy, Imad Salem, who portrayed himself as a high-level Egyptian officer. He lied. Uh, but he was in the Egyptian military. So he went and instituted himself into this group in Al-Farouk. And they told him about, did he know how to make bombs? And we're talking about small bombs. And he actually went to a, to give it a little bit more clarity, he went to visit Al-Sayed Nocera in a prison. And he was serving his prison for a gun charge in which he assassinated uh, a, an, a rabbi, a rabbi, a radical rab, rabbi um, named Mayor, Mayor Kahana, who was uh, the leader of the founder of the Jewish Defense Force, this radical Islam, uh, Israeli group really radical terrorist, actually. So he assassinated him in a hotel. And El Sayed Nocera, he killed him. He shot him in the head. Um, and so he got off the murder charge, but he was convicted on the gun charge. 
And El and Imad Salem went to meet him. And while he was in the prison, he said, uh, I want to bomb Jewish neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And so while he was in the mosque, Omar Abdul Rahman told him, do you know how to make bombs? And he said, yes, I know how to make bombs. And so he went to his handler, Nancy Floyd of the FBI and said, they want me to make bombs. And she said, no, we can't let you do that because her handler, Carlos Dunbar, said, no, we want him to wear a wire next time. He wouldn't wear a wire because it was too dangerous. They pulled him off. And so he basically, instead of, you know, just flat out leaving, he told the group, he says, I think I'm being trailed by the FBI. And so they said, all right, you know, low down, don't come back for a while and whatnot. So he did. So someone at the mosque called Pakistan. And while uh, Ramzi Yusuf was in Pakistan, he flew to New York. And he flew to New York with another associate named Ahmed Ajaj. And Ahmed Ajaj was an Israeli informant which is not known by many people. And I won't try to tail off too much, but he was an Israeli informant acting as a radical fundamentalist. He was uh, an informant for Hezbollah and Hamas and Palestinian jihad and whatnot, whatever. So he played this radical fundamentalist, in which he wasn't. But he was a notable bomb maker, more so than Yusuf, um, in which they went to a camp in Pakistan. It's how they knew each other. So while he was at JFK International, he had this, you know, this really fake passport and he got caught. I think he got caught on purpose because all in his luggage was these bomb making manuals, you know, just scream terrorists, you know, catch me, catch me. And, <laughs> like he had this Al- and he had this manual, which had the name Al Qaeda on it. And at that time, nobody knew Al Qaeda. And at that time, Al Qaeda wasn't a terrorist organization either. They were just a camp in, in Pakistan. In the base. Right. So he gets away, he gets arrested, but he gets detained. And Ramzi Youssef basically uh, uh, files for asylum. And he says, I'm an Iraqi and, you know, I want to file for asylum. And they, the jails were overflowed and he was let go. So he walks out JFK and there's a cab waiting for him. And he says, I have no money. And just so happens, the guy's a Pakistani. So he drives him to Al-Faruq and says, don't worry about payment. So he goes there and he makes the bomb. While he's making the bomb, the FBI goes and replaces the blasting cap with a fake one, right? And so the FBI, Imad Salem says, don't do that. You'll blow the operation and whatnot. And so they, you know, implement, they, they put back the blast cap. And the bomb is you. The bomb is built by Yusuf. However, when that happened, there was another plot that was happening called the Landmarks plot. And this is something I understand People don't know anything about because nobody really talks about it. In that plot, Imad Salem goes back because after that, the FBI says, we need you back to go into the group and because we don't know what's going to happen and we need you back to inform with us. So he goes back and, you know, they gave him a million dollars to do it. And so he goes back, he becomes the informant for the FBI again. And he basically records not just the FBI, because he doesn't trust them anymore. He records Omar Abdel Rahman and some of the members in the Al Farouk Mosque. And so they basically are trying to bomb the FBI headquarters, uh, Washington Bridge, uh, Lincoln Tunnel, um, Jacob Javits, FBI headquarters, United Nations building. So this, this is called the Landmarks Bombing Plot. Number of plots, all bombs. And they're building. So the FBI says, all right, we're going to let you do this in a warehouse we're going to we're going to build and we're going to outfit it with you know cameras and listening devices and it's in jamaica queens so they 
you know, Iman Slim tells him, oh, go in this warehouse. I rent it. And it's not him who rented it. It's the FBI. And so they're building all these other bombs. And so the FBI goes and replaces those with blasting caps. Is that the and famous black and white footage? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, sorry, but is that yeah, the footage you know that, that we footage. see in all these documentaries of all these people in a garage? Like, is that what that's that footage is? Mark's plot. That's right. Okay. That's okay. Mark's plot. Okay. And so the FBI goes and says, well, we, we don't want these bombs used and, you know, actual bombs. So they place false blasting caps and whatnot. And he met some says, listen, you're going to blow out cover. Don't do this. Replace it. And then come in when they, you know, when they're finished. And so they did that. They replaced it with the real plastic caps. And so, yeah, I can understand why that question gets a little bit construed. But, yeah, that's what happened. And basically, the day that they finished is the day the FBI raided the place and arrested everybody. Right. And and, and this stuff, this sounds like – I'm pretty sure I watched Nelson's huge thermal detonator documentary that kind of went into all this. Bojenka yeah. and, and the 93 bombing and all that. So all that kind of sounds – familiar there. So I would definitely direct people towards that. Bajinka, Reed says, I would, uh, can I echo that too? The yeah. Bajinka film, Bajinka Maxim is, his, I think, his best work. And it's just yeah. exhaustive. It's real, yeah, it's, it's his, he's the best nightlife researcher I've ever come across. Him, Ryan Dawson, Paul Thompson, Kevin Fenton, John Gold, Robbie Martin. I recommend those guys right off the bat. So Yeah. Reed says, Adam brings the goods. He does bring the goods. <laughs> Thank you, Reed. Steve from Slow News Day. Hey, just got out of a show. Much love, fellas. Fantastic guest. Yes, a fantastic guest. Fire Pixie says, I'm totally digging Adam. I'm not that familiar with him. We'll get familiar with him. Oh, That's what we were hoping to do with our show here is to bring him in front of an audience who might not uh, have heard of him before. A nice super chat for $20. Thank you, Fire Pixie. Oh. I sincerely thank you, gentlemen, for keeping this talked about. This has been fascinating. Hashtag we are Ryan Dawson. Can I, can I, you know, now that I got you know people's attention, I know they want to hear about certain issues, and I won't take too long if, if you know, I could, Eric. It's yeah. about the urban moving systems. Now, this is something that we were talking about earlier before. Mm-hmm. I want to bring up a story um, that is not hardly ever talked about, but it's relating to urban moving systems on 11. And everybody knows about the dancing Israelis and Sivan and Paul Kurzberg. You know, the Palestinians are not your problem. And they're seen celebrating. Well, I want to talk about the other Israelis that are arrested. And they work for Urban Movie Systems. And um, that may have a bigger issue involving Israeli maybe complicity. All right. So on September 11, 2001, there was another Urban Movie Systems van that was Going to going to Pennsylvania. It was coming out of New York, going to Pennsylvania. And their warehouse, by the way, not out of New York. They have a warehouse in Weehawk in New Jersey, if you're not familiar. Okay. So that's where Urban Moving System is. So they were there was this truck coming out of New Jersey going toward Pennsylvania, heading toward, I think it's Chicago, Ohio. I always get those those two states mixed up. As they're driving, there's the bolo out. You know, everybody knows the bolo. Hey, the urban moving system, man. So they get pulled over. Notice that the truck is empty. Of course, they're not moving yet. So they say, hey, what are you guys doing? And it's, you know, Pennsylvania police, state police. And they say, what are you guys doing? And so these two guys uh, basically say, we're doing a move. We're going to Chicago or Ohio, and we're, we're conducting clients. So they call Urban Move Systems. And they talk with the manager. His name is Dominic Suter. And they say, yeah, these guys work with me. And they say, all right, well, they're not committing any crime. When the truck is empty, they could go. All right, so they, they leave. September 12th happens. 9-11 happens. The 
It's all over with, right? Now the country's on edge. Now the bolo is out. You know, like, yeah, these guys know more than what they're doing. We need to stop all these vans and we need to, you know, interview these guys. September 12th, same truck. On, I, I, I want to say Interstate 44, but I don't drive, so don't go by. It's an interstate that connects between Pennsylvania to Chicago, Ohio. But right near the interstate, interstate is Shankville, Pennsylvania, where Flight 93 crashed. Keep that in mind now. So all of a sudden, they drive by this town called York, Pennsylvania. So they get pulled over. Pennsylvania State Police be on the lookout. Irving was, so they pull over the, the two occupants. Truck is empty. Hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're, we just finished a move. Your truck is empty. You don't got blankets. You don't got tools. You don't got nothing. So they say, all right, we got to call your manager. So they talk to Dominic Suter again. And so Dominic Suter, they say, did you guys have a move out of state, New Jersey? And this is what Dominic Suter told them. That's strange. Due to the prior day's events, we had no clientele outside the state of New Jersey. Next question by the police. Well, how do you explain this? Dominic Suda says, quote, that is strange. I can't explain it. Nobody knows about this. Wow. So they detain them. They say, all right, we got to detain. We got to know about these guys. So they drive them to um, the station and the FBI takes over. Finds out that these two men and their names are Roy Barak and Modi Bupo. And if you never heard these names before, I don't blame you because nobody talks about this. Now, these guys were basically not just in Mossad because like the dancing Israelis and like every other uh, Israeli male, yes, they entered the Mossad at a certain age. But not everybody goes into signals intelligence. Or the army. They have to be in the Israeli That's army. Right. Or, or, You're or, right. right. Not That's technically right. the Mossad, but yeah. yeah. Right. I'm sorry. I'm I sorry. Did. Thank you for the correction, by the way. That's very big. Yeah, in the army. Not so in Mossad. Sivan Kurdberg was in Mossad. But these guys served in signals intelligence. That's deeper. So they investigated these two guys. And it just so happened that Roy Barakamoni Bupal were driving by a crash site of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Now, if you want to ask yourself, well, why is that suspicious? Well, I'll tell you why. Now, what I'm about to tell you is speculation. And I want to be very clear on that. I don't have evidence of this. But where there's smoke, there's fire. It is alleged, and on Flight 93, that the hijacker himself was Ziad Jara. Now, Ziad Jara, low background on him, I won't go too much, grew up in, in Lebanon, non-secular family, wasn't religious at all, goes to Germany to study aeronautical engineering at the University of Griswold. While he's there, he goes to the most fervent mosque in all of Germany, Al-Quds. All of a sudden, this guy is a radical fundamentalist. Lives alone, meets with Muhammad Atta, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, Marwan al-Shehi, uh, al you know, the Hamburg cell. That's but he had, a, he had a girlfriend, and I think she became a wife, right? Aswell Sanguine, that's right. Never lived with her. Stays separate from her. Always lives alone, even with the Hamburg cell. Never together. Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, they live together. Not this guy. He lives alone. And they go to New York. I mean, they travel to, uh, you know, Afghanistan. They go to the United States. Again, lives alone from the hijackers, never lives with them, not even to the point where they're in the operation, the planes operation. It's 9-11. 
while he's in Florida, while he's in Virginia, while he's in New York, in New Jersey, never lives with any of the hijackers. You would think that just two days prior that he would rent a motel in Days Inn in New Jersey. He rents a room for the muscle hijackers. He rents a room for himself. Strange. Anyway, he's alleged to get on Flight 93. He's alleged to be the pilot. However, phone calls are made on the plane where six phone calls are made, two from flights, flight attendants, four from civilians. Hey, we're being hijacked. There's three guys. Hey, they're dark-skinned males. Well, if you look at a picture of Ziad Jara, he looks white. And not only that, they both say that there's a guy, there's two people in the cockpit, one, one guy outside the door, he has a makeshift bomb belt. Why is he wearing a makeshift bomb belt? Is it to make up for a lack of hijacker? Well, anyway, the cockpit voice recording survives. And on the cockpit voice recording, it was played for the families only once. The transcript, however, is public. If you look at the transcript, however, you'll notice at the very bottom, it says the person sitting next to the pilot, Saeed, up down. Saeed, up down. Now, according to other people who were watching the plane, including a C-130 military plane, operated by Stephen O'Brien. He says he's reporting that, hey, there's a plane that's rocking back and forth, up and down, it's going shaking because the people were trying to get into cockpit using the food cart to try and get into cockpit because they dis easily disposed the guy wearing the bomb belt. Now, it is also stated that on Flight 93, they're the only people who announced their intentions. They were crashing the plane. When that make the people say, hey, we're going to fight back. That's exactly what they did. They fought back. However, came out later, 2011, I want to say, a man by the name of Ali Al-Jara, he just so happens to be a distant, I think, cousin of Al-Jara, Ziad Al-Jara. He's arrested in Lebanon. For what? For being an Israeli spy for 25 years. For Hezbollah. It just so happened he had a brother, Joseph Aljara, who was helping him spy for 10 years. Now, to go back before that, on the crash site at Shanksville, all this paperwork, including a business card, belonging to the uncle of Ziajara, Asim Aljara, who just so happened to be an Israeli, Libyan, German spy for years. Not just for them, but for the Abu Nadal organization, which was a radical Arab organization predating Al-Qaeda. So that means he was even a spy before that. And for years, throughout the mid-80s, early 1990s. What are the chances? What are the chances, right? <laughs> so what I'm trying to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Yeah, I don't have evidence to show that Ziad Jura was an Israeli spy or that he's an Israeli mole. I just am trying to think that here you have what could be an Israeli mole inside the operation all the way to the day itself, who he, didn't live with the hijackers. He who might not have like an Israeli, uh, as an Arab fundamentalist. Now, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm not saying that's the evidence. I'm saying to where there's smoke, there's fire. Right. He may not have gotten on the plane at the last minute. I think, th I right. think there's depictions. I watched a movie that came out like. 10, 12, 15 years ago. It's a dramatization, but he calls his uh, significant other and 
you know, he also, I'm oh, sorry, Eric, I didn't mean to step on you, but he oh. also wrote a letter to Asia that's Sweden what, the night before. That's what I was going to ask and, you about the letter with the wife. <laughs> yes. In fact, he was very cryptic in the letter. Even And I, I, um, I, I saw my, uh, the letter itself and the contents are in my WordPress. So in the letter, he basically says, I will see you in time. Um, it, it won't be the last time we meet and stuff yeah. like that. Very cryptic. And kind of similar to Muhammad Atta's father, who was interviewed on September 18th, yes. there's footage of that. Hasn't um, uh, Al-Jara's family said he was innocent and he was not uh, not one of the hijackers, but a, but a, just a, a victim, a passenger on the plane? Have you ever seen that? Yes, it did. Uh, this is a great point you raised, Mike. Is this also, um, this is something that Zia Jara's family thinks, that Zia Jara, if he was on the plane, he, he acted in defiance against it because he wouldn't allow this to happen. Right. Um, because he ra he was raised in such a secular household. Same thing with Muhammad Atta's father. Muhammad Atta's father um, basically says that his son was either an Israeli mole or kidnapped by Israeli intelligence. He was killed by them. Um, I couldn't tell you, but he did speak Hebrew. And he said that I, I got a phone call from him a couple of days ago. I mean, yes. and, and he's yeah. like, "Look at me. Do I look emotional? Am I crying? I mean, which is a right. good point. I mean, if your if your son was being accused of this horrible mass murder terrorist sure. attack." And you're going to sit there with a camera crew a couple of days later and lie that you got a phone call from them. You're either in huge denial or, or it happened. Right. I don't now, know. I mean, it's very interesting. Very much so. But these are the issues where I'm trying to elucidate to your audience in that they should dig deeper in. Not about no planes and no hijackers. Because, when you know, I hate to bring this up, but I have to. Because when we talk about no hijackers being on these planes, look what you did. Right. For those who are saying that none of the planes were hijacked. What you did was you absolved the following. The CIA, the NSA, the Israeli Mossad, the Saudi GID, and the Pakistan ISI. How? Because they're the ones who are monitoring, financing, and following the hijackers, not just inside the United States, but abroad. Because there's no hijackers, none of these agencies and their operations even exist. Right. They won't be brought into the light of day and they won't right. there would never be any accountability. And, and that's really, why the currently you're doing, you're doing their job for them, really. Exactly by, by, by saying right. that right. shit. Right, exactly right. And that's why I'm so adamant, myself and Nelson and Ryan Dawson, with you know, people see us as antagonists and we're aggressive. That's not the case. We're trying to tell you that you're throwing away a much bigger, broader conspiracy where we can name names. Yeah. And yeah, we've, been just, we've been doing that the last hour and 40 minutes, man. It's it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> this is well, no, this is this is the bucket of ice water that humanity needs, man. That people need to hear this and and know this. And this is the stuff we all carry around in our head every day. And, and you just you don't know how to tell people, you know, you want to scream at them and yell at them, but you don't want to look like a stark raving lunatic. But right. uh, this shit is all real and we can verify it. And oh look, you can look it up, man. You know, between yeah. between the three of us, you're looking at like 60 years of research right here between these three brains on this stream right here. So as Jesse Ventura says, we, we ain't crazy, Adam. We're not crazy. <laughs> well, we're, yeah, we're coming up on an hour and 42 minutes. Uh, I got a couple more things here. I'll throw up. Adam is the man. I agree. Adam, oh. you are the man. Tyler Durden. The man. Steve says free Adam Kokesh. He got arrested and I don't know the whole story there, but he should be free. And then, uh, is there an Adam Ryan talk about this? We, uh, yeah, there is, isn't there? You, you got, you guys were on the four horsemen when I was on my road trip, yeah. right? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, if you go on uh, Reed Coverdale's channel, the Naturalist Capitalist, there's a four horsemen with uh, Dawson, Reed, 
um, Adam and Thermal Detonator, where I yeah. know you guys. That was a great. About. That was a great time. Yeah, sure. Oh, that was that, that, was, that, that got taken. Did that get taken down? I don't know if uh, it was taken. Did it? Did that get taken down? I don't know. I think, I I think it did. Reed was able to salvage a clip of it. Or, oh, that's uh, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, that was on Odyssey. Right. It was too much of a torpedo of truth, Mike. <laughs> you know. Well, well, Adam, it's been awesome, man. You know, I've been a fan of yours for a while, and I really oh. uh, respect and admire you. What you and I appreciate what you do. Um, so, tell everybody where they can find you and how they can support your work. Boy, you know how to make a guy blush. Uh, uh, yeah. Hey, listen. Uh, I go if you just Google Adam Fitzgerald nine eleven. I come right up on Twitter. It's underscore Adam Fitzgerald. Um, and um, all my links are basically on my YouTube profile where you could just connect. Go to YouTube. I think that's easier. You go on YouTube, all my links to all my sites are there. And um, I upload daily on there. And stuff. Dark and Dower podcast, right? Yeah, and the I, Dark and I have Dower a, podcast. My co-host, Richard Cox. I got all those links below, too, in this video. So you can follow them all through there um, yeah. in those links. But, um, yeah, this is important stuff. And as long as I have, uh, you know, air in my lungs and a heartbeat, I'm going to be talking about it. And I know you guys will, too. So, Adam, it's been awesome talking to you, man. And I really appreciate your time. Oh, no, listen, guys, thank you very, very much uh, for kind words. And, you know, thank you for bringing an attention to the subject that sorely needed attention for the public. And thank you for the services that you do. And I just got to know you guys, you know, this year. And, you know, I've been more than impressed about what I'm seeing from you and Reed and Peter Quinones and of course, Scott Orton. Uh, these oh, guys yeah. are, and I, you guys are invaluable, invaluable. I'm so fortunate to have run into you guys. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. And uh, we'll have to do it again, Adam. And like I said, we want to have Nelson on. I want to talk about his films and uh, there's just so much work and research and uh, we'll just continue to hammer it and uh, get it out there. Sure. You know? It's my pleasure. Absolutely. Anytime. All oh, right. Great. Well, thank you very much for watching Jackman Radio. We hope you guys uh, enjoyed it and uh, maybe heard a thing or two you weren't familiar with. Uh, we will be back next time. Wait.